0: The truth of the matter was, stories was everything, everything, and, everything and everything was stories. stories. Everybody told stories. It was a way of saying who they, they were, were in the world. the world, it was their understanding of themselves.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help.
3: you're
0: all welcome
2: to participate or to observe. So right now we're in uh, Friendship Park or El Faro Church and this is where the basically there's a, a wall that separates the United States and Mexico and actually goes into the ocean. And from 10 to 2, we actually they actually let the families come and meet, but you can barely, the only thing you can do is just kind of stick your finger through and that's how people greet. It's a good place for people to meet and, and talk to their family members. Some people had not seen their families in years since they're not able to cross. This is the only place where they can meet. Sí, 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 sí. Okay. What was uh, your name again? Hector Barajas. All right, Hector. Okay. Okay. There you go. All right. Well, today is Day of the Dead, Dia de los Muertos. One of the altars that we put up is about uh, deported veterans, men who have died, and the only way they've been able to return home is either in a casket or in a really urgent emergency where that's the only way we're able to go home. So that's what we put the altar up for today. We meet a lot of different activists, a lot of media come through here, and that's how we're able to raise awareness. That's why I throw on the uniform. New York, they're called from Everything is Stories. Are... Oh, is that right? This is Enrique uh, Morones, he's the hey, founder yeah. of Border Angels. Oh, what's up, man? Border Angels, yeah. yeah. How's it going?
3: Well, you know, our group is called Border Angels. We're best known for putting water in the desert to save migrant lives. We've been around for 29 years, and I'm the founder of the organization. And I've been coming to Friendship Park since it opened in the 70s. And on the first Sunday of the month, which is today, we have immigration attorneys that come and do consulting for people that have been deported. So for us, this is a very significant place because this wall is a shame and has caused 11,000 uh, deaths. And this is the heart and soul of the immigration debate, Friendship Park, started in 1971 by First Lady Pat Nixon. There's a picture of her reaching across the wires. There was no wall. Same way, there never be a wall between these two great countries. A 2,000-mile border, a third of it has wall. Most people don't have no idea about the wall. How is it possible that people that have fought for this country, uh, or signed up to fight for this country, are deported suddenly? And that's why the deported veterans are a very important part of our network, and we do a lot of actions here to bring that at attention.
1: We come with tears in our eyes.
3: People don't realize that this is going on in this country, right now, have no idea.
0: Gracias a Maria Teresa. gracias a los compañeros, al otro
3: lado. Nos estaremos viendo
2: hasta el domingo entrante. We'll see you soon. Well, my name is Hector Barajas Varela, and we're at the Deportive Veterans Support House. We call it the Bunker and we're in Tijuana, Mexico, Baja California. Right now we're in a bathroom slash uh, room and we call it the Cave. and this is where, I, you know, I got my little computer there and I work out of it. and Little quiet, quiet place where I can talk to my daughter and those kind of things. I've been at three different locations. Started out of my apartment, ended up downtown, and then from downtown we ended up over here. We've been here almost a little bit over a year. I get probably three vets a week. It varies, it could be a guy that's being deported, like we got one guy that's being deported out of Texas, and another guy that was uh, deported to Senegal, Africa. We have veterans deported to different countries, so we have a variety of different people. We have guys in in Costa Rica, in, in Germany, guys deported to Bosnia, India, Jamaica, Trinidad, just all these different parts of the world, all the way up from the Vietnam War to current Iraq and Afghanistan. So there was guys that were drafted in the 60s that were sent to combat, and then when they came, they came back and got in trouble, they were, they were deported. So Every once in a while, we get somebody that, that'll message just through Facebook or, or word of mouth, but it's not like we're a huge organization throughout the deportation centers or, or the communities. What happened was I ended up, whenever veterans were deported through this little small community that we're connected with, I ended up just taking them in. They would send them and they would stay with me. And So ever since 2009, I've had different people come and stay with me. and Some have come back to the United States through whatever ways they needed to and some guys have stayed in Mexico. We ended up figuring out that we can't just take people in just for the hell of it. You have to have a program, you have to have rules. Everything's gotta become formalized from even the guy signing in to lights out at 10. So, you know, kind of like in the military or in prison. Gotta be transitional. So we help out the men for a certain amount of time. Depending on their economic situation, they can stay here longer. Sometimes we get donations of clothing, food. We have volunteer psychologist, counselor that comes in twice a month. A lot of media outreach.
3: After six years of serving in the military with high hopes of becoming a citizen, Barajas had a run in with the law. Since 2001, more than 100,000 immigrants have become citizens after serving in the military. But it's not automatic, and some veterans have been deported.
2: We're just going to give you guys a quick tour. This is a. our little office and we have various stations because we work with different groups some of the things that you'll see up here are like dog tags over there to the left dog tags of some of the men that have been through this place and this is another flag that we have where some of the men whenever i meet one of the new guys they'll have and they'll come and sign their name there or whatever they want to put up probably the the flag of shame <laughs> for us. And upstairs we'll go ahead and go upstairs this is the living quarters So this is where we all eat together, depending on, uh, sometimes the men will eat outside or you know, if they, some of the guys are working, so. But this is where the guys sleep at. They, there's a workstation that we're putting out, so some of them are gonna be able to work through a call center. Uh, we can have up to four or five guys, it just varies. Right now, we, we only have two men. Some guys have stayed up to eight months. They haven't had like a huge traffic of guys. That's why we've had men stay up for a very long time. So here you see uh, Felix and his son. Well, Felix also served in the military. And this son is you're visiting from, uh, from LA. My
0: name, my name is, uh, let me lower this down. My name is Felix. i was been deported in 2001. Tried to go back in 2010 and I got arrested. Went to jail and I'm back over here and this support house has been helping me out a lot.
2: What age were you when you first came to the States? I
0: don't know, I must have been like four or five, I guess. I was, I was, I was pretty small. Because my dad, when I was a little kid, my dad used to buy me like army toys. You know, even my BB gun was army. When the recruiters started hitting the high schools, I, I, I just had to go. I guess maybe my dad introduced me to that, so that's how it was. When I was in the army, three or four-year contract, right? My dad was misbehaving. He was like, kind of mistreating my mom, wrong, you know. So my mom told me that I had to go home, and I told her I, I couldn't go home because I signed this contract. And I told my, I told my sergeant, how is it? how can I go home? And he goes, the only way you could go home, you tell the captain you can't adapt to military life and you gotta stick to that. When I went to talk to Captain Baylor and I went in there and I saluted him and he he said, uh, you know, what what I want, you know? And I told him I can't adapt to military life. So he started drumming his fingers on the the desk and he asked me again and he goes, what do you wanna do? I said, I can't adapt to military life. The third time he told me, he goes, I'm gonna give you a general discharge and in six months it's gonna turn honorable and that's what happened. And I became an inactive reserve for three years. When I got arrested in 98 in Provo, Utah, I was drunk with my friends, driving the car. They pull us over and and I said, I can't get arrested because my girlfriend's eight and a half months pregnant. So I try to get away. I got into a really bad fight with the cops. Bad high speed chase, you know. If I would've just gotten arrested, I would just gotten arrested, you know what I mean? just for being drunk. I didn't want to go to jail. I I could have probably ended up going to county time and maybe released. It just got out of hand. It just got out of hand, you know what I mean? At the first they tried to give me 20 years, but I ended up doing three years. After I got my sense, like a week or two later, I get a paper said that I have an eye on this hold. That's when the reality hit me, you know. I called my dad, and my dad, I told dad I have an eye on this They're going you know, to deport me back to Mexico. My dad goes, I brought you over here so you won't be selling tacos, won't be suffering in Mexico, and now you have an eye on this hold. Two weeks later, my baby girl was born, my youngest. So the mother brought her, brought the baby to me, but it's a glass. You know, when you're in county jail, it's a glass and you can't touch the person. And she goes, hey, here's your baby. What well, do you want me to name her? I turned and to name her Candelaria Librada Peralta. And that's where I named her. And, uh, and then I haven't seen her since. I feel all this guilt and all this heavy on me because I already saw her, you know, just right there. You know, I didn't even get to hold her. And it just, it's a struggle. After I served my time in 98, they shipped me to Colorado to a federal detention. And then right there, I got my DD-214, try to fight it in court. DD-14 is like your military records. didn't help me none. I even pissed off the judge. He goes, Where do you want to get deported? I told him, England. And he goes, England? And he said, why England? And he goes, you're from Mexico. And I said, When the fuck you asked me? Get this guy out of here. I got deported and I went to Sinaloa. Try tried to cross in 2010 through Mexicali. So I was made it across this ranch, but it was like, they got helicopters, sensors and everything. When I was arrested, one Mexican cop came and he saw my tattoo, he goes, hey, ven Pacan." So I went over there, he goes, put your hand on this computer, you know what I mean? I put my hand, everything came out. He goes, yeah, you're gonna catch a chain. No, I'm not going to try to get I'm going to try the legal way now, you know, through get my DT to 14, my paperwork, trying to do it the, the right way. Yeah, I broke the law with it, but I also serve your country, you know what I mean? You raise up your hand. Uh, the same thing as people going for a citizenship. What do they do? They raise their hand for the flag, and then we did the same thing. You serve the military, that means that you're part of the country. And maybe, maybe that's why I, I suffer a lot, you know what I mean? I, I, it's like, they don't want you over there, and you come over here, and, and your Spanish is not that good, and they don't want you over here, you know what I mean? It's like, where are you going to be at, or what are you going to do with your life? For me, it's been a struggle. This has helped me out a lot. It's a good place because uh, they help you. Because uh, before I came here, I was living this place. was 150 people. It's called Mission La Roca. I was living there. And then, and then this guy that was stood here before, he brought me over here. And it's been, this place has been good to me, you know? That gave me a lot of chances. One time, this one man told me, like, don't blame a person blame the government, but who is the government? Isn't the government full of persons? They don't have a heart. They don't know really how they're separating, how families are being separated. They don't really know. They just what they was shown to them in paper. You know, they had to be there to to see the suffering. That's how I felt. You know, I mean, living in the streets, and I and I put it together just just here at the bunker.
2: Some of the guys. They're permanently damaged for the rest of your life, psychologically, maybe physically, or you know, emotionally. So not enough support, I think that's in general. Even having the camaraderie of just getting together, just hanging out, and there's some guys that don't have family here, so just even have that can sometimes get you to, through the next day. You know, There's so many things that we gotta have in place with these guys because you know, you're know you in a new country. Uh, like right now, Felix, he's going through a very hard time, so we gotta find him a place to get himself well, so he's going to a rehab center. We have a veteran that we're working to get him a new place. We gotta have these places ready, not just here in Mexico, but in other countries as well. In the veteran community, we're supposed to leave no man behind, so we're trying to instill that, that you know we're still all a band of brothers and we wore the uniforms, so we're gonna try to take care of each other.
1: Right now we are about 15 minutes from the border. I'll say like 20 miles from the border. Immigration politics, they're way too complicated. I don't have a solution for it. I don't. I could tell you that we should just erase the border and live all happily, but that's not gonna happen. And I'm probably be telling you that because I'm on this side of the border. So my my opinion is biased. The thing is that Americans don't realize that the immigration problem is not an American problem. It's a global problem. It's a global issue. Donald Trump wants to build a freaking wall. If you don't have any Mexicans, then who the fuck's going to build it? Because whether you like it or not, American economy is only sustainable by that cheap immigrant labor. Will you imagine 20-year-old white boys picking fruit for $8 an hour? I don't see it. I don't see it. Because if you want to not stop the immigration, but at least minimize it, slow it down, then you need to make it so people here in Mexico can live happy and prosperous. They cannot. I I see it every day. Mexico is on the brink of a civil war, and people don't realize that. My name is Daniel Torres. I'm a former U.S. Marine and Iraq vet. And I've been living in Tijuana for the last four years. I was born in Tijuana, grew up pretty poor in a poor area of the of the city, it was kind of ghetto. <laughs> and back then, my dad would cross the border every day and just commute from Tijuana to the States. After like five years doing that, Tijuana got really really dangerous, you know, with the whole drug war and all Black
3: that. continues to flow. Million dollar rewards are now being offered for the Tijuana Drug Buses. Assault rifle's ready. Extra clips of ammo taped in place. Right.
1: So my parents wanted to move. They decided to move to the United States and they settled on Salt Lake City, Utah because that's where my aunt lived. I really didn't think about it back then at all. You know, I was 13, 14 years old. I was more worried about getting a girlfriend than where I was gonna live, to be honest. We entered the country legally because back then my father had a working visa. So we had social security numbers, I had my visa, I had everything, but it was as a minor. So when I turned 18, it, it was no longer good for me. I still had my social security number, but it was not valid for work without a permit. So I was kind of stuck in limbo. I couldn't get student loan. I couldn't ask for any kind of benefits. I couldn't legally work. After high school, I started working under the table for this company, this other company, you know, just kind of like here and there. I worked as a, as a waiter. I worked in group homes, office cleaning, computer land center. I mean, just wherever they, they wouldn't care about my legal status. And there's a lot of places. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I was 19, 20 years old. And that's one of the things that, that made me join the Marine Corps. Because I didn't know what to do, I figured, you know, four years in the military, I might find out what I want to do with my life. I didn't want to just be another legal. I didn't want to be just another Mexican living in the States. You know, I actually wanted to do something that I could be proud of. I wanted to be able to say, you know, I put my two cents in. I I served the country. I I did something. I'm not just here to leech. I, I didn't want to be that stereotype. So when the opportunity came to join the Marine Corps, I took it. I was young. I didn't think about it through. I wanted to be a Marine and that's as far as I thought of it. I enlisted as a United States citizen, and that was a problem. I lied about my citizenship. This was back in 2007. The Iraq War was really, really tough back then. So they just needed to fill quotas as much as possible. I talked to the to the recruiter, and he saw like, "Do uh, you have your Social Security number?" "Yeah." "Do you have your high school diploma?" "Yeah." Any criminal background? No criminal background. Any medical issues, physical issues? No, I'm, I'm good to go. What about your birth certificate? And I'm like, well, it's from Mexico. And he just looked at me and he's like, mm, okay, uh, come back Monday. So I came back Monday, and by Thursday I was in boot camp. There's a saying that there's in the Marine Corps there's no black, white, brown, or Asian. You're all equal shit recruits, you're you're all going to fucking go through the same thing. And I was deployed to Iraq, side of Fallujah, and Arope Castillo. This was in 09.
2: The final battle preparations here near Fallujah continue. Both Iraqi and U.S. troops are readying the...
1: When you signed up, you knew they were going to get deployed. That's something from day one, you know you were going to go to Iraq. If you joined the Marine Corps infantry thinking that you were not going to go to combat zone, you, you're dumb. I was okay with it. You know, I was nervous, everybody was, but we're there to follow orders. And that's the Marine Corps mentality. Your opinion on the war, that doesn't matter. It's not important because you're going to do it anyway. I remember we got there, and it's just this 16-man observation post in the middle of a road, in the middle of the fucking desert. Absolutely nothing. It's just flat sand everywhere. And I'm standing there thinking, shit, this place is gonna suck. Sandstorms, goddamn heat. And then on top of all that shit, I was a company driver. Not only did I have to do my patrols and my posts and my duties, but at the end of the day, I had to climb up on a 7-ton or a Humvee or an MRAP and do resupplying, do transportation, do whatever. We were in the, in the process of uh, falling back and leaving everything to the Iraqi army. We did have some issues with snipers and ID's. Runway
2: detonator wired to lights, a remote control, and
1: a cable that ran to the nearby mosque. The most stressful part would be the clearing routes. Let's say you have a general or a colonel that's going to drive from point A to point B. So a couple hours before you drive, you send two or three vehicles. If an ID blows up, route's cleared. If ID doesn't blow up, route's cleared. That was the most stressful shit because we were just there to see if anything was going to go down, so somebody else could pass safely. I was kind of like the the guy that got piled all the work on, you know, because I was a honey driver. I wanted to see something out of my hard work, and in my company I knew I wasn't going to get any more rank. I was going to get kind of stuck, you know, terminal lands kind of thing. So I was like, screw that, I'll go somewhere else. And I volunteered for a one-year deployment to Afghanistan. I liked military life. It was something that suited me, it was something that was good for me, and I was making good money. So I was thinking about doing career. I went to my company for sergeant, I told him I want to sign up. They sent me to Camp Del Mar in Pendleton. And I was there three months. We were getting ready to deploy, and it was during my de- pre-deployment leave that I lost my wallet. As pre-diploma leave, I went to Vegas. And one morning, I wake up after going out all night, and then I'm like, I don't have my wallet. I don't have my wallet. And I searched everywhere, and my wallet was gone. And it wasn't the money or the, the debit card or the credit card. It was the, the IDs. In Utah, you could get driver's license. You could get a, an ID. You could get those kinds of permits, even if you weren't a resident. Back then, the law allowed that. But then the law changed, and you, were, you, you couldn't get a, a driver's license anywhere, any state, now that I knew of. So in the process of me getting my IDs, driver's license, state ID, it came up that, hey, your driver's license information says you were born in Mexico, but your military service information says you were born in Kansas City, Missouri. So that doesn't fit. So what's going on? When I got back to base, my staff sergeant called me to his office and like, hey, what's, what's going on with this red flag that you don't have proof of residency, but you sign up as a, as a citizen. So which one is it? What's going on here? And that's when I basically told him the whole story and that I was uh, Mexican born. He just looked at me and was like, well, you've already been red flag. We have to report it. So they got kind of freaked out that this guy's illegal, we don't know who he is, and yet he knows where we're going to be and what we're going to be doing once deployed. It was a huge risk for them. They arrested me, and they took me to interrogation. I was there like four hours. They see you in the room, and the first thing they do is they send in a very cute girl. Because we're Marines and we're done. She's like, well, we're going to have to do some questions. Is that okay? Because we need to get the story straight for us to know what's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, they have me sign, wave right to an attorney. As soon as that was signed, Cure leaves and two guys come in, obviously, duh. And they started questioning me over and over Who? what's your name so where are you from can you tell us your name again can you tell me where you're from who knew how did you enlist who knew that you enlisted did your recruiter help you who in the recruiter office knew but well, what about your family we need to know everybody that knew about this they tried to get guys from my platoon that was the last straw because these guys were the ones that I had spent the last three years with, that I had deployed with, and these assholes are trying to get me to throw them under the bus with me. So finally, after like four hours of questioning, I got pissed, and I told them, look, I know my life as a Marine is over. That I know that. I'm not dumb. But if you think I'm going to say something that's going to ruin the lives or the careers of my brothers, you're fucking high. Now my unit was going to deploy again. And they wanted me to deploy with them. They wanted me to be radio man for the platoon. And the Marine Corps said, no, he's not deployable status. He can't go anywhere. And I was three and a half years into my my service by then. They decided what to do, you know? And they were like, we're just going to discharge you. You're gonna lose your GI Bill. You're gonna get a general underarmable conditions. If you stay out of trouble, you might get it upgraded. We're not gonna press charges. We're not gonna turn you to immigration because you have a good record, we don't want to fuck you over. So you're gonna get out, and when you're a civilian, figure it out on your own. Taking into an account that I did commit enlistment fraud and that I wasn't going to jail and that I wasn't going to, to immigration, I thought I was would win-win. I left the Marine Corps February of 2011. I went back to Salt Lake City, Utah. That year was really hard for me because I got kicked out of the Marine Corps. I was not being able to get a job. I couldn't get my GI Bill. I went to the VA and the VA said, well, you're gonna have your benefits and your disability, but uh, legal status, we can't do anything. I kind of got fed up. I kind of got motivated and I said, fuck it. I picked up my stuff, I grabbed all my stuff, and I left. First I came back to Tijuana because I needed a Mexican passport, and then I went to France. I knew about the French Foreign Legion because a friend of mine told me about it while we were still in the service. He would go out on missions with the French Foreign Legion and how the French Foreign Legion would accept anyone. So I looked them up and yeah you can you can go to Paris and enlist no matter what country you, you come from even if you don't speak French. So when I got to Paris I had a backpack 100 euros about a week's worth of clothes and that was it. I had a, a flight back from paris to mexico just in case because you had you got to have it for immigration purposes so i got to for nausea you go to the to the barracks and, and wait and then the next day that you do a physical test and i passed it and then the next day you do a medical exam and i failed that i was disqualified for service in the french foreign legion because of injuries sustained in the marine corps I shot an 84, which is a bazooka. And when I shot that, it fucked up my ear. 15% hearing loss of my left ear and permanent tinnitus. And the French Foreign Legion, they get like tens of thousands of people to apply for them a year, so they, they can pick and choose who they want, you know? So now I was in, uh, in Paris, homeless jobless, penniless. I was 25. I still have my ticket to fly back. So I'm like, I'll just spend a week in Paris and then fly back and take it from there. And on the flight back, it was from Paris to Dublin, Ireland, and from Dublin to Mexico. When I got into Paris, I told them, as a reason to enter Paris, I told them I was going to apply for the French Foreign Legion. And for some reason, they didn't stamp my passport, my entry into Paris. So when I arrived at Dublin, they saw the exit stamp, but they didn't saw the entry stamp. So they thought that my Mexican passport was fake. It fucking sucks, because I know it was a good passport and the guy was just being a prick. He's all so like, well, I don't believe you. I don't think you're Mexican. Say something in Spanish. So I starts talking in Spanish at that time. Go fuck yourself, motherfucker. They're like, no, no. We're going to have to investigate this more. And this was late at night. So the Mexican embassy was closed and their immigration offices were closed. They deny me entry into Ireland. They arrest me. And this was late, it was 8 PM. They throw me in jail. Irish Jail sucks. It's like two meters by four meters, just a yoga mat on the floor and a hole in the floor to shed and piss on. Morning comes, it's like eight in the morning. They take me to the immigration office. My flight leaves at 11. I'm thinking they're gonna figure it out and then I'm gonna be able to go back. I don't see the guy until 10 in the morning. He calls the Mexican embassy, finally says, your passport is real, Mexican embassy has verified it, but you're still denied entry to Ireland. You're gonna miss your flight. You're not going to Mexico. I'm Mexican, have a Mexican passport. You just said that the embassy validated it. And I'm like, so what are you gonna do? We're gonna deport you. You came from France, so we have to deport you to France. He's like, that's the law, so I gotta send you back. They handcuff me, they take me to the plane, handcuff, they sit me down and the whole plane just kind of looking at me like, who the fuck is this guy, right? I arrived in Paris again. I went to the Mexican embassy in Paris. I told them everything that happened. And they're like well we can help you out don't worry about it you just need to bring in a thousand euros i spent two weeks working under the table for bars restaurants farmers markets hotels just kind of do doing regular cleaning and that's how i got a thousand euros two weeks later they sent me all the way back to tijuana and I got to Tijuana and I was exhausted and I was done. I'm like, no more fucking adventures. That said, I'm gonna do something stable and secure. I talked to my grandmother, who's the owner of this apartment. And she told me, well, you, that's the apartment. If you, wanna, if you wanna live there, you can stay there. You don't have to pay a rent, just pay the bills. That was three years ago. I've been living here since then. My uncle is an accountant. At Simsa, which is a hospital. And that same place, the Port of Veterans Support House was asking for help to set up a health plan for the veterans. And they gave him a little pamphlet, and my uncle saw the Port of Veterans and he gave it to me. That was about a year ago, and that's how I found out about the Port of Veterans Support House, and I've been working with them ever since. The biggest problem about the Port of Veterans is that people don't realize how big an issue this is. They don't know that people get deported being a veteran. There are hundreds of veterans deported everywhere from Senegal to Haiti, Mexico, Bolivia, Vietnam. They're all over the place. And there's no records of them. They just get treated by like any other deportee. We estimate their numbers on the thousands. It's been happening years
2: and years. We're always organizing, going to vigils, and, and just, you know, I'm always wearing my uniform, even though I'm here in Mexico, I've had people tell me to take off my uniform, and even deported vets. <laughs> I can... There's no way I'm taking off my uniform. If I'm out there trying to tell people about what we're doing, I'm just Joe so Small with a fucking shirt on, you know, but... Plus, you know, I, I love me wearing my uniform. We're going to die as American veterans. I think we should be allowed to live as American veterans. So a lot of people are going to say, well, no, you should, You committed a crime. Well, you, well, yeah, okay, we committed a crime. We paid our debt to society. We can argue all day about why they fucked up and why they shouldn't go home. But if you're, if you're going to focus on that, then, there, then there's, we don't have nothing to talk about. A regular
1: American citizen, you drink and drive, you have possession of a firearm, you will go to jail, you will pay your due, and then you are free to go. A deported veteran, you will pay your debt to society, and then on top of that, you will still get deported. That's not fair. That's a double jeopardy. And I just hope I don't have to pay for those mistakes for the rest of my life.
0: I started writing poetry when I was in, uh, like in a rehab, and the name of the poem is Somebody, Anybody Help Me. Only the strong-minded will survive the deportation. It's not easy surviving when you get deported from the U.S., especially if you lose everything, family, which is the most important. The material things come and go. It's like a bad dream, but you're living it for real. Just imagine being born in Mexico, and your family takes you across the border to the United States. You grow up, finish high school, then you join the armed forces. You serve your country. Uh, you know what? Uh, there's no way
2: I'm leaving this. But this is my baby. <laughs> so uh, I, I would like to see this grow, not just to the guys here, because the honest truth is legislation is not going to change from one day to the next, and it's not going to happen in five years. Three years is going to take a very long time. We know how Congress moves. While we get more people on board for this, for these laws to change, we've got to have some kind of safety you know, mechanism for these guys so when they get deported, they have a place to go.
0: It's too late. This is, uh
2: Maybe if I close my eyes, the wall will
0: separate. The wall will disappear. No, it's still there. Great big wall. Please, somebody help. Anybody help me?
2: You guys, uh, well, they can't see, but there's probably about 50 American flags in one them, So, uh, I'm, you uh, know, I'm an American at heart.
1: But these are not just any regular immigrants. It takes a very special person to join the military. It takes even more of a special person to join the military of of a different country. You will not find somebody more loyal than us. We're not just some foreigners who got deported. We're Americans that are exiled.
2: You've been listening to Everything is
0: Stories, a podcast brought to you by Oscilloscope Laboratories. This episode was produced by Garrett Crow, Mike Martinez, and Tyler Ray. Music in this episode was provided by Sontag Shogun. We highly recommend giving them a listen, and you can do so by clicking some links over at our website, everythingisstories.com. While you're at the site, you can also find all of our past episodes a way to subscribe to our newsletter, as well as photos taken to complement this episode by our friend Clark Tolton. You can find Everything is Stories on all of the social media platforms and anywhere you consume your podcasts. Follow, like, subscribe, tell all your friends. Anything helps. Thanks for listening. And remember, nothing comes from nothing, and everything is stories.
1: Whatever else Graham Greene does, he always tells you a story, not as old introspective musing and, and grousing and chewing your liver. uh uh-huh, let's get on with the story. Keep me up tonight with this story you're telling me. I want to turn the page. All I ever wanted to be and all I think of myself as being, is a storyteller.
3: That's all. I just tell stories.